Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 5 as we continue our series through this beautiful, important book. And I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Then they're brought back in front of the council, verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all following him were dispersed and came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some away from the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, the kingdom displayed in this chapter is so different. It is so countercultural. It's so upside down to everything that we have ever thought. Unless your spirit fills us and you give us eyes to see, we will not grasp it and we will not live it. So come, teach us, lead us, give us the courage to walk in this kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, in the first four chapters of the book of Acts, Christianity has been heavenly. I mean heavenly. We have spent time with Jesus' physical presence. We've seen the arrival and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this incredible unity among the body and people who are dedicating themselves to teaching and prayer. 
It's a church that enjoys hospitality with each other, inviting each other into each other's homes, a church that's eager to sell property and to give to each other's needs, a church that is witnessing miracles, and the city by and large, even those who don't convert, are holding this church in high esteem. Who wouldn't want to be a Christian in Acts chapter 1 through 4? Who wouldn't want to bask in the soft glow of the esteem of the city to experience this mountaintop experience of Christianity to be at the center of divine blessing? But all of that changes in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we descend to the valley of the shadow of death. The apostles are arrested, they're thrown in prison, they're beaten, they're threatened, and it's clear that the city authorities are just waiting for an excuse to do worse. You remember that Peter was promised by Jesus that he was going to die a martyr's death, a brutal martyr's death, and you got to wonder if Peter wondered every time he was arrested if that was the day he would die. The cost of following Jesus is becoming apparent to this baby church and it will readily become apparent to all who name the name of Christ and follow him. Christianity is not all breaking bread of sharing stuff, of happy table fellowship with friends. Some of us will bleed. Some of us will suffer. Some of us will lose friends. We will be humiliated. We will be dishonored. It will cost us something to follow Jesus. And when that happens, and Jesus swears it will happen, how will we find our way in the dark death valley of cross-carrying Christianity? What is there for us in our suffering? Well, our passage gives us three directions in the dark. The dark curtain has descended on them as it continues to descend on us. And the Bible says, here's three lights in a dark place. Three things that are true about the kingdom that made absolutely no sense to you when you were outside the kingdom and in the flesh, but they are now true for you of faith. And that is that guilt is good, that Godless opposition is divine validation. And number three, that suffering is honor. In the flesh, you have no idea what that means. In the spirit, this is yours in Christ. So let's look at each of those three. Guilt is good. And when the apostles get arrested and they stand in front of the religious leaders, they have this conversation which reminds us just the worlds apart that the church is from the world. I mean, they cannot communicate. They can't understand each other. They might as well be speaking in a different language. They see this thing entirely differently. And our first example is about guilt, which comes to us in verse 28. 
The leaders say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now in that last little line, there is an eternal chasm between the mind of a believer and the mind of an unbeliever. I want to press in. The leaders are saying, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, you're trying to smear us with guilt and guilt is a bad thing and we don't want that, right? That's what the world is saying. The apostles are saying, yeah, we intend to bring this man's blood upon you because guilt is a good thing because it's the first step of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, do you see that these are two worlds apart? The leaders are desperate for the title righteous, to appear righteous before the people, to use their righteousness as credibility for their rightness. And when you accuse them of sin, it is a threat to them because guilt is always bad. Being found as a sinner is always bad. And the apostles who have experienced the gospel know that no one is truly righteous. Every single person is guilty. And you either receive that guilt as a gift from God or you reject that guilt in self-righteous denial, but the one is a blessing and the other is a curse and guilt itself is actually a good thing for us to receive. Within this new life of faith, it is a wonderful thing to be shown our sin. That's counterintuitive and paradoxical and painful. But if you will find a friend in the kingdom who is willing to point out your sin to you, that is a good and a beautiful thing to receive. You hang on to that friend because guilt is good. It's a chance for me to confess it, to see my blind spots, to move deeper in my relationship with Christ. I mean, look at verse 31. We often talk about forgiveness as a gift. Like if I come to my senses and I confess my sin and God forgives me, that's a gift. But verse 31 says the gift giving starts even before forgiveness, that repentance itself is a gift. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I come to a moment before I become a believer. I come to a moment as a believer where I'm convicted of sin and I need to repent and I acknowledge that even that sentiment in myself is not my own doing. I did not marshal that with my own wisdom or strength. Even repentance is a gift from God. Forgiveness also. Guilt is a good thing in the kingdom. Well, that's the first misunderstanding. The second comes immediately afterwards, which is that godless opposition is really divine validation. Now, if in our flesh we resist guilt and accusations of sin at all costs, we don't want to be found guilty, 
how much more so in the flesh do we resist any kind of human opposition? Humanity is hardwired to be people pleasers, right? Humanity is hardwired to be people pleasers. I thought there were only certain kind of people in the world that were people pleasers. Those low Enneagram numbers that fawn for everyone's approval and lose sleep over it. Now I realize everybody's a people pleaser. You have group A that wants everyone's approval and you have group B that wants the right kind of people's approval. But either way, every single person in this room woke up this morning desiring human applause. And that's why this thing becomes so counterintuitive in the kingdom and so difficult to get our minds around. Why would I want human opposition? I want a scenario in which I can get man's praise and God's praise. Now, when I become a Christian, I want to hear more of God's praise than I have of man's praise, but why can't we do both? We can't. And once again, this eternal chasm is revealed between the mind of a believer in the flesh, uh, in the spirit, and the mind of an unbeliever in the flesh. The leaders say in verse 28... It's so simple, y'all. We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. In other words, we told you exactly how to stay in our good graces and win our approval. You do this our way and we will like you. You do this our way and we won't hurt you. You do this our way and we won't talk trash about you and we won't disregard you and we won't humiliate you and it won't cost you anything. Do this our way. Which makes perfect sense to anybody walking in the flesh. But then Peter opens his big spirit-filled mouth in verse 29 and says, you know what? We must obey God rather than men. He is speaking Chinese. Nobody understands what that means. The religious leaders can't imagine, they cannot imagine why someone would want to willingly lose their favor And the apostles on the other side of the chasm can't imagine why they would possibly trade God's favor for man's favor. Two totally different worlds at work. You know, Paul throws down this gauntlet in the book of Galatians who were talking trash about him in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 when he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man. Listen to this. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, I might actually have to choose. Like Peter and Paul are saying in 
instead of this grasping life where I live with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and when I'm around these friends, I I do things that they like and when I'm around church friends, I do things that they like and when I'm here on Sunday morning, I smile and say the right things and when I'm on my own, I do what I want to do and when I'm at work, I say things that they'll like and when I'm in small group, I say things that they'll like. Instead of this world where I navigate the favor of both worlds, Peter and Paul say God and man live in opposite directions. And the moment I turn towards man's favor and I take a step towards his just fawning praise and approval, I've given up something in my relationship with God, I have turned my back on him, and I've resisted his will. I cannot have both things. If I am receiving godless opposition, then that is my divine validation and that's a good and a beautiful thing. So as a believer in this kingdom, I am inviting guilt, that's good, and I'm inviting opposition that's against God's kingdom. Number three, lastly, suffering is honor. Now, the council gets the advice from Gamaliel. I think it's funny. He says, don't mess with these guys. You might be opposing God. They say, fine, we'll take your advice. They grab them. They beat the heck out of them. They throw them out and threaten them, which seems like they want it both ways. But the disciples leave happy about it. They're happy about what just happened. Again, two worlds at work. The leaders, they beat them up and they think, That'll teach them never to do that again because people will do anything to avoid pain and humiliation. Done deal. And the disciples who live in a different universe say, I'm going to do that again. There's something here that is more important than pain and humiliation. Now, I realize as we sit here this morning, it is easy to nod in approval of what the disciples are doing rather than actually experience the slightest bit of pain and discomfort in our own lives following Christ. But it's at least good to see a roadmap that the kingdom is leading me in a direction away from what my flesh has told me my entire life, that my highest value is to stay safe, warm, and dry. In this kingdom, suffering is honor. It's a beautiful thing to suffer in Jesus' name. Now, I knew, no, we flew through all three of those. We could do a lot more, um, And there is more to think about those, but when guilt, opposition, suffering attend my faith, it has already done that. We could testify to that. It will do that. The directions that come here seem like they are from an entirely different planet. Like the apostles are from Mars and the leadership is from Venus and they just don't understand each other, right? Now you guys are familiar with that book. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Anybody read that book? In here, nobody, two people. I didn't read it, but apparently it was the highest selling nonfiction book in the 90s. I mean, it was kind of a big deal. And of course, it's talking about the differences between genders. I looked up the book and I found this gem of a sentence on Wikipedia 
which says the book and its central metaphor have become a popular part of a popular culture and the foundation for the author's subsequent books, recordings, seminars, theme vacations, one-man Broadway show, TV sitcom, workout videos, podcasts, men's and ladies' apparel lines, fragrances, travel guides, and his or her salad dressings. You might want to read this book, man. It's had a big impact on our culture. We didn't dress like men and women until this book came out, and then now we have it. Well, you think the differences between the genders are big, like you're starting to date somebody, or you're entering middle school, or you're married, and you're looking across the aisle and saying, man, men and women think really different. That is nothing compared to this kingdom enlightenment, where actually, me as a man who is a believer, has more in common, sees the world in a more similar way to a Christian sister in Christ than I ever could to an unbelieving man because faith is thicker than gender. This is a world apart. If you have eyes to see it, there is something deeper here than men's and women's salad dressings, right? Here are the kingdom directions in the dark death valley of cross-carrying Christianity. Could it be that Jesus himself is so glorious, so supremely valuable to me that it is worth anything, anything to follow him? That it could actually be that guilt is good, that I can press into my guilt of sin because repentance is a gift? Could it be that godless opposition is divine validation because by God's help when I endure godless opposition, I find in it God's applause? Could it be that suffering is honor, that by God's help I celebrate suffering or service or the small places in the kingdom with no attention because there is an honor here greater in the kingdom than that the world could possibly give me. All of this is only possible because Jesus goes first. Jesus, in his incarnation, takes our guilt upon himself. And he takes our godless opposition upon himself. And he takes our suffering and humiliation upon himself in his death on the cross to forgive us, to free us, to liberate us from ourselves. And when he turns back from that narrow road and says, come, take up your cross and follow me, did we actually think he was going to lead us anywhere else but through the valley ourselves? It is a death to follow Jesus. And let the world who cannot possibly understand scratch their heads at the cost of this faith and try to talk us out of it. But as for us, as for this household, we will follow Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, 
We're like a man who finds a great treasure in a field and goes home and guards all of his possessions and then tries to get the field and the treasure too. Forgive us. Let us repent of those things and instead be the man who gladly sells the trinkets that he has. Trinkets of applause and approval and possessions and reputation and comfort and gives them away so that we gain the treasure of great price, which is you. We celebrate and glorify you today. In Jesus' name, amen.